submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've been going through this series, thank you for that, by the way. We've been going through this series on the book of Ephesians, and it's been so life-giving to me. I've enjoyed just preaching through the book of the Bible. That's what we like to do 90% of the time here, is just take a book of the Bible and work our way through it. And we come to this controversial passage, uh, at least controversial for our day and age. It has not always been a controversial passage throughout the history of the church. In fact, I would say it's really been within the past 50 years or so that it's become controversial. But the church has always had a lot to learn from this. And it has always, as you will see as we go through this, been a countercultural passage. It has never been a passage that has just been accepted by the culture. It has always been and continues to be and will continue to be a countercultural passage. Christian, Christian marriage is countercultural. Even when it looks like the outside community is embracing Christian values, it's oftentimes muffled and mutated, and it just looks like this thing that the Bible's not describing. But the beauty of Christian marriage is outstanding as we explore this. And so I hope that we have open hearts and open minds to this countercultural beauty of God's vision marriage. As we've been looking at this book of Ephesians, the past several weeks, we've been talking about what does it look like for us to imitate God? What does it look like for us to be a representative of God? And then last week, we talked about how we submit ourselves to one another. And we talked about what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so now what Paul is doing is he's going through several different examples of how we might submit ourselves to one another in accordance with being filled with the Holy Spirit. As we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we submit ourselves to one another, but then there's special types of relationships where particular types of submission and leadership are necessary. And so he starts with marriage, and next week, we're gonna be talking about marriage again. So he starts with marriage, we're gonna do two weeks on marriage, and then the week after that, he'll talk about parenting and, and being a child, that special relationship that we have with our parents and with our children. And then, which you don't all have kids, but you all have parents in one way or another. So it's still gonna be applicable to you. Um, And then he's going to continue to go on and to say what it looks like for us to live these types of relationships in the workplace. And he actually uses the example of slavery. And we're gonna have a joyous time in like three weeks talking about uh, biblical idea of slavery. You know, it's in the Bible. You have to deal with it. You have to do something with it. And I think that that's one of the big problems with Christianity these days, and especially pastors, is up here it's hard to talk about these things that are not culturally acceptable and that might make you want to think, oh, I don't trust the Bible. But the thing is, I trust everything in the Bible. I love the Bible. And if I don't give you everything that the Bible teaches, you will be left wanting when your friends ask you, what the Bible has to say about this, or when you get to these really confusing passages where it talks about things like this, like gender roles and slavery and whatnot. So it's better that we tackle these things head on. 
Um, as we talk about marriage, one thing that I'm going to do is try to answer several of your questions, but that you might already be thinking, but I will not be able to answer all of your questions because we're preaching through a book of the Bible and I want to kind of stick to the text the best way I can. So I'm only going to be talking about the things that they talk about more or less in Ephesians chapter five. I might go a few other places in the Bible because the Bible best interprets the Bible. So you have to stay with the Bible. But for the most part, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 5. So I want to suggest a few resources if you want to do a little bit more research or a little bit more reading. The first, and these are my personal copies, so coffee stains and all. Um, this is uh, The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller. Fantastic book for people who are married or not married. Uh, I require this for premarital counseling at the church, so it's a, it's a good one. Um, a couple other ones that you might want to pick up that I'm going to be referencing today and are kind of weaved. These thoughts have been very influential to me, so the thoughts of these books are very much weaved throughout the sermon. So if you've read these, you're going to recognize a few things that I have to say. But another one is called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles, um, and that's A Case for Gender Roles in Ministry. It's by Kathy Keller. I find that to be really helpful. I also find it to be helpful to read a woman's perspective on things like gender and sexuality. Um, and then another book that's very helpful to me is, Is God Anti-Gay? Uh, and Other Questions About Homosexuality, the Bible, and Same-Sex Attraction by Sam Albury. So those are just a few. I will give you, I have extra copies of these. Um, I don't know if I have them here, but I will definitely bring some and give them away to anyone who wants one of those. Marriage is controversial in our day and age, and that's because our culture simultaneously overvalues marriage and undervalues marriage. Our, our culture loves to sentimentalize and over-romanticize marriage. Have you ever noticed how almost every Disney movie ends, not with a marriage, but with a wedding? That's something I tell our, our uh, premarital couples all the time as we're going through. It's like, you're preparing for the marriage. The wedding is only one day. The marriage goes on for the rest of your life. So that's what you have to prepare for. But the Disney movies, they all end with this wedding. And you never get to see the marriage afterwards. You never get to see Cinderella working out all those childhood traumas that she has. Because you know she's full of them. It's like Prince Charming's like, hey, sweetie, could you, could you remove your slippers? Could you just keep them out of the middle of the floor? She's like, don't tell me to clean. My stepmother always told me to clean. I'm not moving anything. She's like, oh, hold on a second. This place is looking really filthy, Cinderella. It's like a rat's nest in here. The rats are my friends. I don't want to hear you on that. This is the argument that they're going to have moving forward because it doesn't just go happily ever after. Marriage is hard, and we over-romanticize it far too often. Tomorrow is Valentine's Day, which is a holiday meant to sentimentalize love. But how many Valentine's Day cards actually say the true feelings that we might have for one another? I mean, in marriage... We're following Jesus, and we're learning what it means to follow Jesus. And so, when was the last time you opened a Valentine's Day card and it said, being married to you reminds me of Jesus' call that I must die to myself every day? That's the reality of marriage. The romantic feelings are important. They're glorious. I mean, no one goes to the altar saying, I guess I'll marry you. I have to marry someone. No, they go to the altar saying, I love this person. And I want to be with them for the rest of my life. But then after that, marriage is 1% romanticized love and 
overarching commitment, which is just this deeper love that we can have for one another in the confines of marriage. And while we might have a tendency to over-romanticize marriage, to overvalue marriage, at the same time, our culture has a tendency to undervalue marriage. In 2018, marriage rates hit an all-time low. That's pre-pandemic. I, can, I don't know if the statistics have been released since the pandemic has happened, but I will guarantee you that marriage rates have continued to plummet. These rates are lower than what they were during the Great Depression, which is when you normally see marriage rates go up and down is when the economy goes up and down. Our marriage rates are lower than ever. And it seems as though more and more people are delaying marriage in lieu of living together or maintaining longer dating relationships. Many people, some people for sure, even look at marriage and say that's an outdated and maybe even a crazy institution. Commit to one person for the rest of your life? You've got to be crazy. And it might feel like our culture is more hostile to the biblical idea of marriage than ever before. And while that might be true, I don't think it's completely true. Because when you look at the biblical day and age of, uh, that this scripture was written into, the Roman world did not value marriage the way that we might imagine they did. Sex was open in the Roman world. Men were expected to cheat on their spouses. It was expected to, to have sex casually. And then here comes along the church with their biblical sexual ethic that teaches that sex should only occur in marriage and that marriage is for life. And the Christian idea of marriage was just as foreign to the culture of Ephesus as it is now. In Ephesus, they had a temple to Artemis where temple prostitution occurred. Sex outside of marriage was so expected. Many of the statistics that you might have heard that show the hopelessness of mar marriage are just bad statistics. For example, you might have heard that 50% of marriages end in divorce, which is true. And you might have heard that 50% of marriages inside and outside of the church end in divorce. But that's just a really bad statistic. Because there's so many different factors that confound that study of marriages inside and outside of the church. Marriages among Christians and non-Christians, that there's no difference in divorce rate. First of all, when you look at that statistic, it's saying marriages. It's not saying people who get married. Because the statistics show that people who get divorced once have a much higher likelihood of getting divorced over and over again, multiple times, driving those rates up. So it's not as though every person who gets married has a 50% chance of that marriage lasting or not. Because it's just looking at all marriages. Beyond that, it's, it's not defining Christian the way that you and I might define Christian. It's just self-defining Christian. Do you consider yourself to be a Christian? And the problem with that is 40% of people who consider themselves to be a Christian only attend church zero to one time a year. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know if I would say that that necessarily reflects a deep faith in Christ. And so these statistics are bad. In fact, statistics show, if you even look at this research done by Harvard School of Public Health, the Chan School, it shows that attending regular church services together as a couple reduces the risk of, of divorce remarkably by 40, 47%. The statistics are really firm that if this is your first marriage and if you're attending weekly church, that the chances of you getting divorced are far less 
than they would be in another situation. I don't think that you can use these stats to make you think that the church, that the marriage is not something that we need to value. So friends, do you value marriage? Do you overvalue marriage or do you undervalue marriage? Are you looking for that spouse to complete you, to make you, to make everything right in your world? That would be an overvalue. Or have you written off the institution of marriage as not for you or as something that is behind the times? Maybe you undervalue it. We have to avoid both of these pitfalls and see the bigger picture of what God's idea of marriage is all about. So this week we're handling these first several verses, five verses, and next week we'll handle the next five verses in this passage on marriage. So this week we're talking about what is marriage, why did God create marriage, Next week, we're going to be talking about what does it mean to be a one flesh union? What does it mean to have sex? How, how does that happen within the church? It's going to be a high attendance Sunday because we're talking about sex, which is the way it happens in churches. So this week, what is marriage? Marriage, my friends, was created by God. It was created by God. When you look at the first pages of the Bible, you see that God created everything. And as he created everything in different days, he said, and it was good. And it was good. He created the earth and the, and the heavens, and, and it was good. He created the water and the animals, and it was good. And he created people, and it was good. Until you get to this one part where he looked at humans. He looked at Adam, this first human that he created, and he said, it is not good for man to be alone. And so what did God do? But he created the first marriage. He created a woman, and he put them together in the Garden of Eden. He created this thing because it wasn't good for man to be alone. So marriage is not this special thing only for Christians. Marriage is what we call a common grace from God. And we recognize many common graces. The, the, the rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous both. There are many things that are blessings to us, even if we aren't Christians necessarily. And so God gave us the institution of marriage as a common grace for all people. That means that, but at the same time, <laughs> sorry, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. God created it as a, as a common grace. And God created marriage as one man, one woman committed for life. Marriage is a covenant. It's not just a declaration of feelings of love. It's a binding promise to love one another for the rest of our lives. The reality is that those romantic feelings, they come and go. I don't want to downplay the romance because it's an important aspect of marriages, but those romantic feelings, they come and they go. And hopefully they grow deeper as they come and go. But marriage is a promise to be loving and faithful and serving through thick and thin. Marriage represents our relationship with God. That is what it is. It's meant to represent our relationship with God. In our passage today, he says, wives, submit to your husbands as the church submits to God. And he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so even though it's a common grace to man, to all people, to humanity, it's a common grace, it's a gift from God. It's in every person, whether they're a Christian or not, it reflects something about God. Just as all people are made in the image of God, all marriages are made in the image of the gospel. It reflects this uncanny truth about God's love for us. 
Now, we are a church in Somerville, Massachusetts in the year 2022, and we're talking about husbands and wives and marriage, and the elephant in the room is what about gay marriage? And it's something that uh, over my four years of pastoring here, I have not taught on it. And the reason why I haven't taught on it is because it hasn't come up in the text until now. I don't want to harp on things that aren't there. But today we have this passage, and it's very clearly teaching husbands and wives. And I also haven't taught on it because I don't want to be a church that's known for what we're against. I want to be a church that's known for what we're for. We're for the good news of Jesus. We're for creating a gospel culture that's welcoming and loving toward all people. But I do want to allow the scriptures to guide us. And so as we come to this passage and address this topic, I hope that we have open minds and open hearts to what God has to say to us here. In our passage today, Paul gives instructions to husbands and to wives. This isn't unique to this passage, but the entirety of scripture teaches this reality that marriage is between a man and a woman. God has designed, has designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. He's the creator of it. He's designed this thing. And God teaches that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. Christ and the church are not interchangeable things. A man and a man or a woman and a woman cannot reflect the union of Christ and the church as God designed it. I realize, I know, it's like, I just need to say this. I know, I know that sounds really hateful and judgmental to some people. Some people hear those words and they just think homophobic, but that's not what I'm intending to communicate. And in fact, when you look at the story of scripture, I don't think that that's what it's saying. But God, as a designer and creator of marriage, gets to tell us the best way for us to flourish, flourish in marriage and with our sexuality. He gets to tell us. Much as when we buy a car, there's a user manual where the one who designed the car gets to tell us the best way for you to take care of that car so that it will flourish. And so if I don't go in line with the user manual of my car and change my oil every 5,000 miles, I'm not using my car in the designed intention that the car has been designed for. It's not as though God opposes all homosexuality, but approves of all heterosexual behavior. That's not the case at all. Any sexual behavior outside the confines of one man and one woman committed to one another for life without the confines of marriage is outside of the design of marriage. Countercultural, always has been countercultural. Sam Alberry, uh, I recommended his book a few minutes ago. He's, he identifies himself as same-sex attracted. Uh, he's spoken in Boston a few years ago in singleness. He's a great uh, leader and pastor and, and great preacher. And this is what he has to say, and I find this to be helpful. He says, this is not to say that commitment and faithfulness cannot be present in a gay relationship or that they automatically exist in a heterosexual relationship just by the virtue of a couple's heterosexuality. I know gay couples where there is impressive loyalty and commitment, just as I can think of some heterosexual couples that are floundering and failing at this point. The issue is not the feelings of commitment between two people, but rather the kind of union God gives to a man and a woman when they become physically one. Friends, with that being said, with what the Bible teaches on marriage being clear, I need to be really clear about something else. All people are made in the image of God, and there is absolutely no room for ostracizing or for judging or for bullying or for bigotry and hatred in the church. 
There are too many gay friends that have been ostracized, judged, and hurt by Christians through the year. And so here at this church, we must labor to create a gospel culture, one that is loving the way that God has been loving to us, not because we had our act straight, not because I came in here as a righteous person and said, finally, I've got my life together. I'm going to show up to church. No, I walk in here broken every week, every week in here, a broken, a person who's sexually broken, a person who's broken completely, who needs a savior. And so if anybody walks in here and they don't think that they need a savior, you can just have your mind changed. You're welcome here. I wanted to say, just get out of here, but you're welcome here. All right. Because sin blinds us. We're all sexually broken people. And we have to create an environment that's welcome to people who are broken, people who are different from us, people who are wrong. <laughs> you might be wrong. You, if you say that this is not a church for Democrats, or this is not a church for Republicans, are you allowing there to be a, a, this to be a church for people who are wrong? Because I'm okay with having people who disagree with me and who are just flat out wrong on things in our church and loving them over time, slowly and carefully, as God has been patient with me because I've been wrong about a lot of stuff in my life. Rosaria Butterfield, who's this fantastic, she wrote Confessions of a Non-Likely Convert. She was the, the chair of the sexuality department at Syracuse Univers University. It was like a gender department that she was teaching classes in. She was in the literature department there. I just said a lot of departments, but something like that. Um, she was the chair at Syracuse, and then she became a Christian radically, and she's written prolifically on this topic. Um, she was, she was um, and she says this. She says that... Um, that gay people are not some different race of people, that there is one category of personhood, a soul that will last forever, an image bearer of God. And I also wanna be really clear that not everyone who, ex who experiences same-sex attraction is gay. In fact, in our churches, I am confident, in fact, I know people in our church who experience exclusive same-sex attraction. And the church is a place for you and we have to make it a place that's safe for people that are broken in that way, that, that have, as I said, we're all sexually broken people. And as Sam Elbury says, it's no more unchristian to experience same-sex attraction any more than it is unchristian to get sick. What marks us out as Christians is not that we never experience such things, but how we respond to them when we do. So church, we treat every person with honor and dignity as image bearers of our God, regardless of sexuality, regardless of gender, regardless of immigration status, regardless of race, we love people the way that God has loved us. If you're here and you're gay, or if you have a friend who is gay and you're thinking about inviting them, we welcome you. We're so glad you're here wholeheartedly. And we hope that this message of the gospel be clear to you as a fellow image bearer of God, as a person worthy of dignity and respect. The call to follow Jesus is open to you even, to everyone. And it's not easy for anyone. Jesus calls us to lay down our lives and to follow him. But it is the way of life everlasting. So what is marriage? A covenant relationship between one man and one woman for life that represents the love of God for his church. Point two, why did God create marriage? Why did God create marriage? God made marriage as a symbol and a sign of his, to reflect his relationship with his people. 
And this image is shown through the way a husband and a wife love one another. Contrary to what our culture might teach, the Bible teaches that there are real differences between husbands and wives, real differences between men and women, that those differences are not oppressive, but they're beautiful and according to design. And so let's explore what he has to say here. It's verse 22. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so here it is. We're reading in the Bible, and we, we get another thing that's kind of difficult to talk about in our day and age. Um, but it's one of those things like, hey, if we say that we believe in the Bible, what are we going to make out of this passage that says women, wives, should submit to their husbands? And it's like one of those things, it's kind of like when you get to predestination in the Bible, people are like, I don't believe in predestination. I'm like, what do you mean you don't believe in predestination? It's written in the Bible. You don't believe that word exists right there? And it's similar here. It's like submission, it's a word, it's written there. It's not if you believe in it or not, it's what do you make of it? How do you interpret that? How do you think about that? To submit does not mean that you are less than the other person. In fact, I would say that to submit means you are equal with that person. Otherwise, you wouldn't have to submit. You would just be submitted. You would just be there. You would just be under them. But you are equal with that person, and you joyfully place yourself under their leadership. The Bible uses the word submission in a variety of different places. Jesus submits to God the Father, yet he is equal in, in divinity and in power and in might, but he submits himself joyously. Just a few verses ago, the verse right before this one, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission is not a bad thing for us to do. We submit to one another. Everyone is called to submit. And another thing important to note here is it does not say women submit to men. It says wives submit to your husbands. Women stop submitting to men. That's what I have to say to you today. That's not what we need from you. We need strong women to, to lead in many ways but wives submit to your own husbands. The call to gospel leadership is to lead as Christ has led the church, though. So you're not just submitting to a husband who says, go get me my beer, it's the Super Bowl. You're submitting to a husband who lays down his life for you as Christ laid down his life for the church. The beautiful thing about Christian leadership is it never, ever demands its own way. Love does not demand its own way. So we look at the commandment for the husbands, and it's beautiful when you think about it in conjunction with the wives. Submitting to a husband like this would be no problem. Because listen to what it has to say. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. A husband is never, ever to lead by demanding her submission. Never. He is never to lead his wife by demanding his own way. Instead, a husband is to be a student of his wife, seeking to know her wants and her desires and seeking to meet them by laying down his own preferences. I'll just give you an example. Not that I embody this all the time. I do not. But last year, um, my wife and I were in a little bit of an argument. 
And it was because my wife wanted us to get a new car. But I did not want us to get a new car. And my family, we drive the thing until it won't drive anymore. I've got mechanics in my family. We just take it to the shop. We get it fixed. It keeps going. At this point last year, we were driving a 17-year-old Honda Pilot. It was a great car. The seats were all being torn up. It was leather, but the leather, you could barely tell it was leather. It was like all cracking. Uh, the, the passenger window wouldn't roll down. Uh, the air conditioner worked sometimes. There was nowhere to plug in a phone whatsoever. It had no rear, dash, rear mirror. You had to turn your head all the way around. We're getting older. That's getting hard. The, to listen to anything on your phone, we had a tape deck that we had one of those tape converters on it. But now it's been so long that, we, that the tape converter had a converter to go from audio port to lightning port. So it's like we had to go converter, converter to hearing things in the car. We did not need a new car. 140,000 miles, that car was going to go. It was a Honda, okay? That, that's how they roll. Literally, they just keep rolling. But Megan wanted a new car. And um, our semi-reliable Honda may not have been the most reliable on the planet. Okay, I'll give you that. There's only so much that my mechanic, the Honda King, can do for you. Okay. So uh, I prayed about it a lot, and I did not want a new car. But you know what I did not do? I did not go to Megan and say, you know what? The Bible says that you are to submit to me. And I do not want a new car. You know, it wasn't really about the money for me because we had the finances to make it happen. It was more about the pride for me. Because to me, I grew up in a poor household and I didn't want a new car because I didn't want that to say anything about me. I don't want to be a person that has the means to have a new car. That feels humiliating to me. And I know that might be odd to some people, but if you grew up in a more impoverished area, you might understand. Um, but if I had said that to my wife, she could have just turned back and said, you know, sweetie, the Bible says I'm supposed to submit to you, but doesn't it say that you're supposed to lay down your life for me? Doesn't it say that you're supposed to give up everything the way that Christ gave it up for the church? And she'd have me. I'd be done. And so we got a new car. Because I am called to lay down my life, and there was no reason not to. And it was a smart idea. What does headship mean in a, in a relationship? It means that husbands lay down their lives for their wives in whatever way that looks like in your home. And the brilliant thing about Paul here is he does not say what that looks like in your home. That looks different from home to home. It's going to look different in my home, and it's going to look different in your home. There's no culturally defined necessary. There are culturally defined ways that this look, but those are culturally defined, not biblically defined. In my home, I practice being the leader, or I try, by engaging my wife in conversation, seeking her opinion. I don't just let it go. I continue to seek her opinion when we're to have a decision to be made, and I make sure that she's well listened to, and I try to go with the way that she thinks is wise, or I try to talk her into my way. And then if we get to this point to where neither of us know which way to go, I make a step. I say, we don't know what we need to do here. I pray. I take a step. And if she does not like that step, I step back. And I think about it a little bit more. Another thing that I try to do is lead in repentance. And men, husbands, I think that this is one of the best ways that you can pursue your wife. And I'm going to say this is cross-cultural. 
that when there's a disagreement, and don't give me that junk like you don't disagree, okay? People disagree different ways. Uh, some people get right at it, like me and Megan, okay? Like, I, Mike and Alexa downstairs, they've heard a few arguments. I'll, I'll put it that way, okay? But some people, they're like, yeah, we've never had a disagreement. We just haven't talked in three days. I'm like, that's a disagreement, all right? You're just not resolving it. And then some people are like, we never have a disagreement, but I just give her everything she wants. That's placating, okay? You can't do that. When you have a disagreement, a husband is called to lead in repentance. That means that you examine the log in your own eye and you go to her first and you seek her forgiveness. Even if you think she is the reason why the fight started, even if you think she is more to blame than you are, you lead in repentance. You lay down your life. That's humiliating because you're saying, I'm more wrong than you are. And I've just adopted that position and say like, I always have to say I'm more wrong than you are. That's not to say she can't do that. And it's beautiful when my wife comes to me in repentance first. That's, oh, it warms my heart. It melts me down. But God has called me to lay down my life. And that's one way that I will do it. I will lay it in humility and say I was wrong over and over and over again first. When you're looking for a wife, I'm going to talk more about what to look for with a, a husband or a wife. But when you're looking for a spouse, the number one thing, I'm going to talk about that next week, okay? Not, not time this week. But the number one thing you're looking for is someone who will repent. Someone who will say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? That's, that's the type of character that you want to be with. That's, that's the way you know this person is going to be a better person in 50 years than they are today. To be a leader, to be the head, does not mean that wives are barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen. It does not mean that women cannot be the primary breadwinner in a home. All that stuff is culturally defined. For many years in my house, we had a painting hanging up in our bathroom. Some of you may have seen this painting. We had a painting of Starry Night in our bathroom. My wife herself painted that painting. And uh, it, was, it was beautiful. It was a great painting. But it was a bathroom painting, okay? It wasn't, it wasn't in the living room. It wasn't where the TV is in many homes. It was in the bathroom, all right? That means we like it enough to keep it, but we're going to put it in the bathroom. Fair enough, all right? So it was a good painting, though. I liked the painting. I don't know where it is now. I, I don't think she does either. Or else she, she's like, we can talk about this later. Um, our version of it was great. Megan's a great painter, but she's not Van Gogh. Ne no, neither is anyone. Our replica captured some of the glory of Starry Night, but it paled in comparison to the real Starry Night. But that's because Megan, the way she painted it, is she printed off a picture off the internet of Starry Night, and she painted from that picture. If you had given Megan, though, six months to go live in the MoMA in, in New York and sit in front of the Starry Night painting that Van Gogh did and replicate his every brushstroke, I guarantee you it would look a lot better. It would be a lot closer to the original. How can you have a better marriage? You keep your eyes set on the original. You keep your eyes set on the OG husband, which is Jesus himself.
the more you stare at the beautiful picture of what marriage is supposed to represent, the easier it is for you to lay down your wife for your lay down your life for your wife. When you see how much God has forgiven you, how much Christ has pursued after you and forgiven you, though you were going your own way, suddenly it becomes easier to ask for forgiveness. Suddenly it becomes easier to forgive someone for leaving their socks on the floor. Suddenly it becomes easier to have a marriage that flourishes. If you want to have a great marriage, you have to return to the good news of the gospel over and over again. Let your hearts be warmed by the way that Jesus has loved us, the way he's joyfully laid down his life. And as you look at the love of God, two things are going to happen. First, you'll sense how your love for your spouse is such a dim reflection. And second, you'll be filled with awe and inspired by the love of God. Friends, our view of marriage is deficient because our view of God's love for us is deficient. Your love for your spouse is not enough because you haven't understood how much God loves you. And I know that that feels sentimental, like, oh, yeah, yeah, I know, God loves me. But friends, let me just communicate this to you. You, warts and all, God loves you. That while you were still an enemy of his, he came pursuing after you that he laid down his life on the cross so that you might be bought by him and brought into relationship. The love of God is not the sentimentalized, romantic kind of love. It's a heartfelt, self-sacrificing, I'll do anything for you kind of love. Hear this from Philippians 2, that Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's how we're to love one another, sacrificially. When you reflect on the love and patience that Christ has with you, with you, it's so much easier to be the spouse that you desire to be. So I have one marriage tip. I wish I could give you like seven tips to spice up your marriage or something like that, but the Bible doesn't do that. The Bible says, love Jesus. Look to Jesus. It's the same thing with parenting. It's the same thing with all of our relationships. If we would just look to him more, experience his grace and new more, be filled with that and respond in kind, imitate in kind. Do you see how... Paul's emphasis at the beginning of chapter five, where he says, first, verse one, he says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And now when he's saying, wives submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives, how those things are connected. We imitate God. One day, my friends, marriage is going to end. Our marriages are momentary. Marriage does not last into heaven. You will not be with this person forever. You will be with this person until death do you part. They're temporary marriages because they point, they're a symbol. They point to something bigger and better. They point to this large reality that's a profound mystery that we read about here that, that Christ is preparing us for. He said that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus is getting us ready, church, for our wedding day. He's getting us ready through these little micro marriages, these small, temporary, momentary marriages that are big today. They represent a, a divine 
promise of one day what Christ is getting us ready for, and that's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're going to be brought into his presence fully and experience the realities that we only taste in part now. We see dimly as in a, a poor mirror. Revelation 19 says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. This is a, a vision of the, the future, a vision of what it looks like for us to experience marriage with God in this way. Like the roar of many waters and the, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. May our temporary marriages glorify Christ and prepare us for the marriage that we'll experience and have these temporary things preparing us for that eternal reality. In the same way, each week we participate in a temporary meal that prepares us for an eternal reality. The communion meal that we celebrate each week is a symbol and a sign of the meal, the feast that we'll enjoy in heaven. Your marriage is to what you will have in heaven as this meal that we're about to have is to the feast you will have in marriage. You will have in, in heaven. Marriage has a lot of feasts too. Put your eyes on Christ. That's, that's, the, that's the, the encouragement. I want your marriages to be great, but I want you to love Christ more because I think that that's the way you have to go. As we participate in this meal, as we enjoy this meal, let's be reminded of what Christ has done for us, that his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us. And let's pray as we prepare to receive this sacred meal. Father, as we come to your table, prepare our hearts, make them ready. God, we, we long for we long for the eternal marriage that we'll spend with you, for the divine intimacy that we have with you. We long to be made one with you. We long to walk with you in the cool of day in the garden. God, we thank you for these temporary, momentary marriages. And God, we pray that they might do justice the image of the gospel that you've given us. And you might help us lay down our lives because you've laid down our lives for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.